0: Women physicians in in academic medicine uh, earn 67 to 77 cents on the dollar compared with their male colleagues. And women physicians, regardless of race or ethnicity, earn less than men of every race and ethnicity. This is a big problem.
1: You're back at the Faculty Factory Podcast, and this is going to be a good one, folks. I'm Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and guess who's with us today? Dr. Amy Gottlieb. Hi, Amy. Hi. Great to see you again. Well, Amy Gottlieb was here back in September of 2019. You want to check out her episode. It's episode number 37 that dropped October 4th, 2019. And in that episode, Amy talked about really Important, timely events, and who knew they were going to be as timely as they are now? Allyship, the tincture of time and how we bend toward justice, parental leave, job negotiation, sponsorship, corporate finance. She taught me a lot how Amy said she's an avid reader of the business literature, which really got me thinking about that's a gap in my portfolio. Talked about sponsorship and protégés. So many important ideas, concepts, and they've turned out to be really, really important. And let me just start. Right, I'm so excited. Let me talk, tell you, first of all, Dr. Amy Gottlieb is the Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs, a professor of medicine and obstetrics and gynecology, chief faculty development officer at Bay State Health and University of Massachusetts Medical School. Is that right, Amy?
0: Yes, Correct. Although we do have a new, um, a new name for UMass, it's UMass Chan Medical School, Bay State now.
1: UMass Chan Medical Medical School. All right, I got that. Now, Dr. Gottlieb recently published published a book closing the gender pay gap, and produced an article on the same topic. She's been working, thinking really hard on equity and gender and this has like been your passion for the past couple years you've been on the national speaking tour zooming in and out everywhere as well as hopkins last summer and i think this is a great place to just let's let's get right into it amy welcome welcome back to the podcast thank you for being back again and i'm super excited
0: Well, thank you so much. It's just really great to connect. A lot has happened. Wow. So much has happened in the world, uh, Kim, since uh, September 2019. And as you mentioned, I... I've continued to immerse myself in scholarship and advocacy related to gender equity and medicine and science, now with a really sharp focus around closing the gender pay gap in medicine. And um, I wanna thank you for for mentioning um, the book I published last year, which is Closing the Gender Pay Gap in Medicine, a roadmap for healthcare organizations and the women physicians who work for them. Um, I have been uh, just tremendously uh, Uh, Lucky to have had the opportunity through that book and an article on the same topic that I published in the New England Journal last year to meet and engage and speak with um, academic medicine uh, leaders and faculty nationwide around this um, topic that I care deeply about, uh, which is pay equity in our field.
1: And it's also perfect timing. I need to mention, those of you who know the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, GWIMS group, group for, on women in medical science. Medicine and science. Medicine yeah. and, um, I'm, I was in, in the GFA, the group on faculty affairs, but Dr. Amy Gottlieb is the chair elect for Gwim. So this is all coming together. Isn't it a beautiful thing when things just happen? Um, so this is perfect timing.
0: It's really wonderful. And I will say, I, I want to give out um, uh, a major shout out to the AAMC, the Association of American Medical Colleges, because it's really through them that I had the opportunity to become really involved in this effort around salary equity. As, as, as your listeners may recall, I began my pref- professional life in corporate finance and then left to pursue a career in medicine. And you know, really closing the gender pay gap reflects the intersection of my professional skills skills, um, leadership experience, and passion around equity, inclusion, and supporting the success of women in medicine and science. And the AAMC has really um, been a thought leader around um, raising the level of conversation and transparency related to pay equity in medicine and science. And through my work with the group on women in medicine and science, um, uh, have really been invited to participate in a lot of those initiatives. Uh, and uh, and so, so thank you for for mentioning the amc they've really been just an incredible leader in this space.
1: Well, thank you for your leadership. This is not, these are not paid positions, folks. <laughs> so thank you so much, Amy. So what do you want to talk about today? There's so much, and I'm going to try to be really quiet and let you lead the conversation here because it's super important. Well,
0: thank you so much. I would like to, um, I guess a couple of things. The first thing is to talk, to acknowledge that the pandemic has really been, an incredibly busy time for all of us, um, and none more than women physicians, who, like women uh, uh, in the labor market writ large, have had to shoulder the responsibility of daycare and school closures and remote learning throughout the pandemic. And this has resulted in, as I'm sure you know, um, reduced work hours and decreased academic productivity. And 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 throughout all of that, the gender pay gap has continued to widen, and and so I like to think about the gender pay gap as a crucible in which all the forces that diminish women's professional value within our society and within our professional institutions converge, and and, and this is really uh, true in Madison where there are multiple inflection points in women's career trajectories, where our traditional way of paying folks, of valuing the work that they do, disproportionately rewards the way men, physicians, and faculty have worked and lived for generations and and so you know i think it's really critical and it's quite honestly my you know my my life's mission to to help institutions and individuals identify and acknowledge and address these contextual forces as we said about correcting the practice of of paying equally talented women Less than their male counterparts, you know, women and and women physicians in in academic medicine uh, earn sixty-seven to seventy-seven cents on the dollar compared with their male colleagues. And women physicians, regardless of race or ethnicity,
1: earn less than men of every race and ethnicity. This is a big problem. So, what? Why do we still have this problem? I feel like we've been talking about this for decades. Why? Why there? And we let's assume it's not now now intentional right it's not intentional right yeah (laughs) because I have heard things like well it's because women just don't want to work as hard as they choose they choose not to take the extra or time or they choose not to go into the high paying specialties it's a conscious decision to select or volunteer to not get that kind of money is it is there truth to that
0: So I thank you for if you essentially just summarized all the cultural narratives. This is wonderful um, around the gender pay gap. So let me just start unpacking each of them. so, so, so first of all, the data that I quoted, um, the 67 to 77 cents on the dollar, or a number that folks may also hear, um, uh, which was, a is, uh, is data put out by Doximity, which is not just ac- academic docs. In fact, it's, it's mostly non-academic docs across the country, 72 cents on the dollar physician, women physicians earn. So it's even you know more striking. Um, so, so those numbers and there, you're right, there has been decades of data, um, rigorous data, controlled data looking at this. So, so there are, so so, so the the um, pay disparity numbers that I mentioned and that one reads about are are numbers that have been controlled for work hours um, for specialty, for rank, for years in practice. so so those numbers that that pay gap is real and it's not based on um, all the elements that you um, have reflected that you know that have been the cultural narrative. I will say a couple of things. so so one what why are we still struggling with this? Um, i think there are two primary reasons um one is is that is relates specifically to compensation methodology within um within medicine so so typically um compensation methodology in our field rests on um on a formula um, of base salary productivity rank and seniority and leadership and and these um, the this calculus Contribute structurally to gender-based in salary inequities because of women's diminished earning potential in each of those domains. So, so what do I mean by that? So um, so for example, base salary um, is there's, you know, typically there is considerable difference between a base salary low end and high end of a stated benchmark range, for example. And there is a lot of opportunity uh for to be placed higher in that range based on salary expectations and vigorousness of negotiation. Mm. And and that's critical to establishing, for example, initial initial salary at higher. And um, those elements, negotiation and salary expectations, we know from decades of data um, and research are subject potentially and vulnerable to gender bias. An example, another example is productivity-based compensation, which is impacted negatively by increased demands on women for organizational service, increased time spent with patients, but resulting in better outcomes, but lower volumes, and greater responsibility for domestic duties compared with male colleagues. And then last but not least, limited formal leadership roles and less sponsorship for those roles uh, to access those roles decreases the compensation that necessarily attaches to these opportunities. So again, the calculus of base salary, productivity, um, salary and rank and leadership opportunity inherently has disparities that result in compensation um, inequities. I also want to just address one comment that you made, which was really insightful, which is this idea of um, women entering fields that, in medicine and science, that are um, less highly compensated. And that is a concept, Kim, called occupational gender segregation. And you are absolutely right that there is emerging evidence that women trainees continue to be directed towards specialties like pediatrics that require traditionally feminine attributes and away from more procedural ones, like for example, orthopedics. So this concept or this phenomenon of occupational gender segregation has tremendous consequences for pay equity because in the US labor market as a whole, we have seen a loss of prestige and a decline in earnings as more and more women enter a field or occupation so when an entire specialty loses ground in terms of relative pay and that's reflected in these salary benchmarks that we're using to set base you know base compensation when that happens the earning potential of all women entering that field are um is put at considerable risk So so that's kind of bucket one, which is, is we have to really, organizations really need to rethink how they are compensating their physicians and faculty to understand the expectations that are driving that compensation calculus and the outcomes that they generate. And then the other bucket really is that I think nobody would argue with the concept of equal pay for equal work But it's really how to um, achieve that goal that overwhelms institutions and their leaders. You know, organizations need a roadmap. That's literally why I wrote the book. And it is very practical. And um, and I intentionally, I, you know, I edited the book. I was approached to write the book. And I thought to myself, you know, there have been so many articles, um, so much written about the problem. And uh, what's been missing from the conversation is how, is the solution, how to solve the problem. And so I was I engaged experts in the field of compensation um, around the country uh, and by experts in the field. I mean folks who are, are not just vice presidents in HR, but uh, an attorney, an employment attorney, folks who really know who could really come up with a roadmap for organizations to, as I said, assess how their current compensation methodologies are perpetuating pay inequities, how to build the governance structures and coalitions and processes that are going to be necessary to incorporate equity principles into routine business practices and how to create the dialogue and consistent messaging um, and cascaded information to achieve organizational transformation um, in this space. Um, This is not something that's one and done.
1: Amy thank you so much for doing this hard work and thinking and digesting all the literature and the data and putting everything into historical context I'm I'm so impressed and just awed by the work this that you've done with this book and it's so important and I'm so glad you kind of led into this telling us how you did this exploring compensation models and I was because I was curious in your personal history of corporate finance I can't help but think there has to be someone has figured this out and you fill in the blank without whatever this is. Now, I remember being with my buddy, Charlie Irvin in Chicago for one of the, and we had a session on precision faculty development. And I went on one of my little diatribes about, you know, amazon.com knows so much about me they communicate with me when my order was placed, when it's being filled, when it's being mailed, when it was delivered. It was just put on your front doorstep and oh, it was just stolen from your front doorstep. So you might want to order it again. And because you like this, you might want something similar. And they know all that. And yet our institutions, many of them are as I used to not communicate to faculty members. where's your promotion packet in the in the, right. <laughs> the common courtesy to. To you know, tell us what's happening in our careers and these imp- important life events. And then, of course, someone rightly said, "Well, they're Amazon.com. They are, have a gajillion dollars, and they are all about consumer marketing. That's how they make their money." And yet, then my rebuttal is, "Well, if they can do it, surely we can do it. We are we are the you know some of the best brains in the galaxy. So yes. I know that we can." fix this problem so that because we have the brain power to, it leads me to believe that it's just a decision, a choice to not fix it. So in corporate, in the corporate world, I I mean, again, the hires belying my ignorance, I can only imagine in maybe high priced uh, lawyers. So you've got a whole legal team and you've got all this, you know, corporate attorneys and they want to, you know, recruit, retain and promote the best attorneys they probably figured out, so the, these are smart people who are really educated. I met they're men and women doing both things, the same jobs they have a structure for a base salary and you get your um you know bonuses based on whatever whatever. It just seems to me again, bellying my ignorance here, other industries have figured this out, and why do we stubbornly in academic medicine resist the obvious that there are models that there are ways to do it, and so then why don't we?
0: Well, I think, you know, I think unfortunately other industries have not figured this out. In fact, you know, you mentioned law and, uh, you know, the legal profession has a gender pay gap too. And uh, I think, I think though, that what is, what is both hopeful and, um, and, and, and maybe revealing for, for, for academic medicine is I liken uh, closing the gender pay gap to the QI movement 20 years ago. And so if you think about it, the quality improvement movement Um, really resulted from the Institute of Madison um, calling the U.S. medical community to action to prevent deaths related to low-quality care. Um, It was an incredibly complex system of interdigitated, interlacing forces that, oh my gosh, people couldn't get their heads around. However, just like QI, um, gender equity in the last 20 years you know, gender equity and specifically closing the gender pay gap to progress from exhortation to intentional action is going to require institutions to do what they've done successfully, right? Mostly in QI, they're going to need to measure, they're going to need to report, and they're going to need to align incentives, um, or what folks may call accountability. Um, For paying women and men who do the same work, equally. And I think, you know, you would ask me early on in this conversation, you know, what's, what's driving all of this. And I talked about, Um, the traditional compensation methodology of base salary determined by commercially available benchmarks, plus additional monetary reward for rank leadership and productivity, and how all the cultural forces um, impact each of those domains. And so, in addition to building institutional cultures in which men and women are not limited by, by gender role expectations, Organizations are gonna to need to recognize that closing the gender pay gap is also a critical business endeavor, requiring the same attention, the same rigor, and the same attention to detail afforded other operating costs. You know, labor in, in healthcare is one of the, if not the biggest operating expense. And so what that means, and what I've, you know, my journey in the last two years, so I really started, so um. Uh, you know the the book, of course, because this is how life works, right? Um, the the book, all the ch- so uh, the chapters to the book were literally due. Okay, guess yeah. January, February, twenty twenty. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> so so I spent. I mean, it was. I mean, looking back, it's really amazing. All of us have these stories about the pandemic, right? You know, the the first four months of the pandemic were, you know, uh, 24-7, or I guess I'd say twenty two seven. 7 you know, healthcare institution um, um, uh, duties, right? And then getting up for me, for the book, you know, at four in the morning for an hour and just saying, I'm going to work on a chapter today. I'm going to work on a chapter today. And 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 you know i think that this was kind of meant to be um for me because now what we've seen coming through the pandemic is that workforce our workforce is so critical. It is the most critical element mm-hmm. of, of sustaining our profession. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what's at the essence of that is paying people, rewarding them fairly for the work that they do.
1: That's right. That's right. And, feel, and being valued, feeling how faculty need to feel valued that you are seeing the work I'm doing. I am compensated just like the person next to me and also this promise of academic medicine, academic medicine, mm-hmm. this is the other thing that I you know I'm really and a lot of us are worried about that gosh, you know I people can go to private practice and earn double, triple the salaries. Um, why would they come into academic medicine because there is this promise of getting into discovery and prevention and treatment and cure and science where is the science happening in this? In the in the current and future model of health healthcare and all the pressures on our clinical scientists,
0: mm-hmm. you
1: know how is it, how does this play out? So I think the one side is certainly the 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 equity in salaries and in compensation, and you have to also look at equity in resources. Yes. And opportunities to do the science and to be a leader.
0: Absolutely. And I'm so glad you raised that. So because so so a couple of things. One is, you know, what you're getting at is something that is really important to me, certainly in the in the genesis of this book. Um, but also in the in the aftermath of the book and these opportunities that I've had to meet with institutions and institutional leaders and faculty is that we cannot do this alone. This is going to require tremendous partnerships with HR and finance to understand um, how to operationalize equity along the career continuum for our physicians, uh, for our faculty, our physicians and, and scientists. And what I mean by that is... Um, is you're so right that um, when I give talks about this, one of the highlights for me is to express the importance of that initial, that startup, Um, the data, the the salary and resources, the data are really clear and consistent that um, the the gender pay gap starts right out of training. So there's, there's no history, right? Everybody comes with the same background and yet men and women, men are paid more. Um, And then, there's also data for startup packages around research and so 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 institutions you know my exhortation is start somewhere do something mm-hmm. and you know to me one of the best places to start is at that initial hire with um with resource resources and comp because if if an institution is expecting ROI right return on investment um their investment in this talent in the workforce they I, they should want to set that person up for success. And part of that is resource, is resources, resource allocation.
1: Amy, can you shed a little bit of light on the other end? So, you know, we, most of us who are listening to this podcast are, I assume, academic medicine people and have come up through the ranks. We're all about schooling and education and living the life in the ivory tower. Can you open my eyes to the other end of our colleagues in HR or in finance, when they come up with these algorithms and and the calculus for some, for coming up with how something is monetarily valued, how do we bridge that gap with those partners in our institutions to understand that is, is this just basically a, an economic, situation where I I don't want to I mean economics fascinates me I don't and I don't want to give short shrift to our colleagues who are driving these business models and and coming up with all these calculations but I oftentimes feel like they don't appreciate what it is to do this job. So and I guess that's just kind of the age old question how do how does one value that relationship with a patient in the room? Mm-hmm. Over the RVU that's generated at the bottom of the, you know, the when you when you're closing the encounter on, you know, on Epic, how how do we? And this kind of maybe is where where we all went awry. Do we? Where do the faculty members come into the the calculation? The the essence of what we do, as you said, the word essence earlier, that made me think of this. Is I fear that we don't. Um, that we have not communicated that well enough, or they don't care the the finance people just don't get it, or they're not really, um, that's not in their purview to understand, truly understand what it is we do. Am I making any sense? You are making a total Uh sense. And what you're getting
0: at is the RVU as a measure of productivity. And how are we measuring productivity? And, you know, I think, so I have a couple of responses to that. You are totally on the right train in that kind of 10,000 foot view, which is that, how to compensate physician, particularly, you know, physician faculty in 21st century healthcare really needs to look very different from the um, time-honored model of, you know, volume-based productivity. Um, um, And that, you know, the RBU is really a, Well, I mean, I'm going to reveal my, you know, my bias here. It's, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of conversation about this. You know, it's a problematic metric, um, mostly because, you know, it was designed, it was not designed to value or to measure physician productivity. You know, um, it was, you know, it was, um, it was designed in the early nineties to, you know, be a form of um, kind of a, a rubric for payment uh, for, for services, which, you know, part of which is physician work, some of its, um, uh, you know, um, uh, location and, and infrastructure, et cetera. There are a lot of different domains that go into RVU. And as such, it's, um, you know, uh, physician work, practice expense, and professional liability. Those are kind of the major components of RVU um, valuation. And the metric itself, besides not being designed to, to measure physician productivity, um, uh, was is also kind of has some methodologic problems, because uh, it's based on survey and reports, and it's, it's subjective. So if we if we kind of leave that piece alone and look at what you're talking about, which is how are we, how should we think about product, what's productive in 21st century healthcare? You know, I think we've learned that um, volume, a volume-based metric, like an RVU um, uh, is, is is not ideal. Number one, because uh, as we've seen, you know, pushing physicians more to see more and more patients uh, not only doesn't help quality. Um, but it has led, uh, one could argue to a tremendous amount of burnout. And some folks even say that, you know, it potentially monetizes the doctor patient relationship. I would say for for women physicians, it really has the RVU model has tremendous potential to, um, uh, perpetuate the gender pay gap for all the reasons that I mentioned in terms of inherent, um, um uh disparities with uh for for women physicians in terms of the amount of time they spend with patients resulting in better quality but but fewer volumes um, uh, having increased demands for organizational service, taking themselves away from um, from you know kind of clinical revenue generating by RVU standpoints, and then last but not least, what you said, you know RVU, the RVU system highly rewards procedural specialties and you know women. uh, uh, for the reasons I stated around occupation, gender segregation may not have access to those. So what do we do? What do our HR and finance colleagues do in terms of thinking about different models for productivity? Well, quality, Um, you know, I mean, there's, you know, there, there's so many, there's so many potentials that align with our 21st century healthcare values, um, patient experience, although, you know, we'd have to think about how to quantify that. Um, I, I mean, I would argue citizenship. Um, As well. Uh, And so I think that there have to be those conversations around what are the what's the mission, what are the um, what are the values of an institution and how can we make the compensation align with that? I mean, an institution also may say, you know, equity is a a value of ours, you know, and and if equity um, is a value, then what does compensation look like in, you know,
1: in in that in that rubric? And then tying all of that to the faculty members' uh, promotion possibilities. I mean, then making sure those are all linked. The I imagine an institution or a school's mission that might say, yes, we value quality, experience, citizenship, equity. And then that, there's a direct line item to how we have the indicators that measure that at the patient level, in the, yep. the lab level, in the educa- in the classroom, at the bedside. Yep. In the staff, in the departments, all those measurements. What does that look like in each of those domains? How do we compensate for that, and then how do we promote around that? Uh, that seems to me that would tie that up nicely. And I think that's
0: so well said, and I think what you've just described is kind of reflects what um, early on, you know, when you said, "Why aren't organizations doing this?" And like QI, it's because what you just described that that trajectory is, you know, complex, right, and iterative. And and so you know I think institutions and institutional leaders should not be deterred from adopting a strategic vision to compensate their um, physicians and faculty. At, equitably and to recognize that you know overturning practices and implicit biases that have been in place for decades if not centuries um will take time and so they have to start somewhere and start with something and stay focused and so in that um beautiful description that you mentioned choosing one of those elements Um, you know how are we defining productivity in the lab how are we defining productivity to productivity in the outpatient setting and really digging deep and avoiding the temptation to fix everything at once you know this is the QI process Mm -hmm. at its best you know It's 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 plan, do, study, act. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Ongoing evaluation, um, discussion and feedback, remediation, you know, continuous process improvement. And of course, there has to be a governance structure at the top that is keeping its eye on the strategic vision. But all of the nitty gritty starting somewhere, doing something um, is is the
1: devil is in the details and it takes time and and partnerships. Oh Amy I love how you you wove in the quality improvement TQM total quality management CQI continuous quality improvement all that stuff from way back when the plan do study act you're, you're so right that's a really good model and I think what you're saying is also making me realize that it's who's asking the questions you know that we have to ask curious questions but who who is at the table sharing their experiences of that model is right. is one thing. So that's where you know we get task forces and committees to look at things that come up with these recommendations. And then sometimes we're never quite sure how those recommendations are implemented and who's making the decisions to say, if we think there should be some new new algorithm for thus and such and it should take into account equity and quality experience. Okay, sounds great. And then how does that get implemented? Who is then making the decision? Who is then?
0: And where are the metrics for so that? So, you know, I, so the whole patient experience thing is, um, is complicated, right? And you need people at the table to say, well, patient experience, of course, that's a, that's a, that's a, a mission and a value for us. However... What's the bias inherent in in the measurement of that? So, you know, we know from good, you know, good research in our space that um, in academic medicine, that women, it's a double edged sword, right? Because women physicians um, may be more vulnerable to higher expectations around. Um, the patient experience than their male colleagues. And so how, you know, the, the data is only good as the input, right? So or the metric is only as good as the data. And so just to your point, having the right people at the table to weigh in on all the potential drivers of a potential of a, of a metric, of a compensation metric is so critical for closing the pay gap, the gender pay gap in perpetuity. It's relatively, it's not simple because it's costly, but it's relatively simple to say, okay, we're going to conduct a salary audit and we're going to identify the disparities and make them whole. But then what happens next year and the year after and the year after?
1: To me, I, I, every, you cannot, I can't lose, or I don't think we can lose by having the diverse, and and again, it's broadest sense of diversity age and, and ability and degree types and backgrounds to play these things forward. I was just trying to remember, I was talking to Silk Soto Santiago, the vice chair for faculty affairs um, development and diversity at Indiana university on the podcast. And she talks about leading with wellness and equity. And it was a really great conversation. Uh, Laura Schweitzer recommended we, we talk with her and she was hmm. really talking about these, these biases And we were talking about a colleague of mine back at Rush University Medical Center, Paul Carvey, who whenever he would teach about how to write grants, he'd always say, play it forward, play it forward, play it forward. Right, right. If you have a scientific question or a hypothesis, play it forward. Uh, Any good program planning, or I imagine anybody in the military, you play that situation forward. If, then what? If this, then what? If this, then what? And think ahead, think ahead. So, you know, Amy, what you're talking about is also making me reflect on this that let's play it, whatever the it is, as you say so nicely and concisely and beautifully start somewhere, do something. If we pick one thing, let's play it forward and let's have all the people at the table in various levels to help us think about where are we going to go, whoopsie, didn't think about that. And the right. classic whoopsie is when I remember being in Faculty Senate. They're talking about promotion and how many letters of recommendation and then how many letters of referral and endorsement one needs. And in this clinical excellence track, you need some letters from your patients. And then a hand was raised and it was one of our wonderful doctors who said, I work with homeless populations. It's I can tell you right now, I'm not going to be able to give you an address for my patients to then contact them. There you go. Right. Write me a letter of recommendation not going to happen so where does that put me and everybody kind of like oh that's interesting it's a good example of playing it forward you need we we need the voices that will go hello you know um have you thought about whoopsie no because my biases my framework my lens drove me right to that conclusion yours drove you to that conclusion and there's so many different ways of looking at things. And if we don't have all the eyes and ears and heads at the table, we're going to have a whoopsie that when it goes forward, we have something like the RVUs and where we have a bunch of, you know, overworked, undervalued, underappreciated automatons on an assembly right. line. And they're saying, wait a minute, what am I doing? Why did I come here? Where's my science? Where's my heart? Where's my passion? What? What's happening? And and what you said, you know, is is earlier, you know, we should be
0: well placed in academic medicine to to tackle this because we are so good at the why, right? And that playing it forward. And what happens and what happens and why and why and why.
1: We just have to turn our attention to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Amy Gottlieb, start somewhere, do something. It's that's easy. Let's just pick one thing. We don't have to do all of the things, but. One thing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amy Gottlieb, do you have any parting thoughts for the Faculty Factory podcast audience? Otherwise, I'm just going to keep yammering and yammering and we're going to be here for hours and people will tune out.
0: (laughs) I just want to say, because we have spent a lot of time, so I'm a systems-based change Uh, person, always have been. Um, I do believe wholeheartedly that the primary responsibility for closing the gender pay gap rests squarely on the shoulders of our institutions for all the reasons that you and I have talked about. I I would be remiss, however, um, if I didn't just uh, mention something about what individuals can do, because I... Individuals are listening to this and, you know, and, you know, on an individual level, I really do believe that the most critical contributor to pay equity is understanding the playing field, the rules of the game, you know, folks really need to know that, you know, There are commercially available benchmark um, salary data sets that institutions rely on. One of the biggest ones in academic medicine is the AAMC faculty salary survey. Individuals need to understand that and they need to understand Um, Where their organization, you know, what their target benchmark range is within um, that salary data set, and what are the metrics for placing individuals within those benchmark ranges, because that's all about knowing your worth um as an individual contributor and um, i think we as a profession have no, ha- could do a lot better in terms of educating our trainees around this particular element of you know career satisfaction
1: that's right and uh, thank you amy for reminding us of that that and not keeping it a secret once one of us learns about the sal- the, the salaries book and what the ranges are it's not um, getting something for you will take away something from someone else. The pie, you grow the pie by sharing the knowledge. There should be no secrets. And that's always our motto. This is not a secret. The salary book uh, data are available um, here at Hopkins. We have copies all over the Vice Dean suites and the library. We have the online version. Faculty simply ask us. We send them the, the pages and all the, the the relevant data for them. And uh, and we tell them, this is not a secret. Share, share it. You have an obligation when you learn something good to pass it to the folks who are a tick behind you on the ladder and hopefully bring people up to speed so that we're all at least on the same starting field. It still breaks your heart when you hear people go, oh, I didn't realize that I could ask for more money. I didn't realize I could ask for something. And I always think, are you kidding me? Who by now has not heard this basic thing? And that, yep, there's still people who's like, oh, I didn't know. They told me the salary was this. And I said, okay, sounds good. And, you know, I think, I think that this, you know, maybe I
0: come to this very practically because of my experience in corporate finance, that the best advice I actually ever got about um, talking about salary was uh, for, for folks in academic medicine was to approach a conversation about, about one salary, as if you were reading a journal article and asking about the methods section. Huh. Because think about it, you would not be, I mean, that most of the audience here today probably, you know, reads journal articles um, uh, consistently and looks at that method section. And if that method section, and you know, they didn't understand something, they say, hey, tell me a little bit about like, what drove that decision? It's literally the same thing and with Southbury. And so tell me, you know, um, as an individual, having that appreciative inquiry, around so so here's the salary you're offering you know what's the benchmark that you're that you're using and what's the target and what makes it fall Mm. within that you know within that range
1: I mean wow he
0: escalates it a little bit right
1: right right I that changes a whole interview dynamic or approach and wouldn't it be nice though as you pointed out earlier about giving fair to be honest to be equal um uh, uh, responsibility on both ends: the institution writ large and the individual. The same way. Wouldn't it be lovely if all of all of the responsibility weren't on the ins- on the individual to say, "All right, is she coming into this bringing guns ablazing, or does she not know anything?" And how can we play this? Rather, just saying, "Here it is. Here are our books. This is what our compensation plan looks like. We got the best best methods paper written about it. There appendicial material. We have no secrets." these are the different models, this is how this looks, can you, wow, wouldn't that be a mind-blowing experience if you were to interview for jobs and everyone just had this, right? Well,
0: that's my holy grail, and you know, there are, um, uh, I mean, there is at least one that I'm aware of, um, institution, uh, uh, the Mayo Clinic, that is a salary-only model, and um, that's very transparent about, you know, this is this is what the salary is for the specialty. And, you know, within a certain number of years, everyone um, they've published about this and I, you know, everyone within a certain specialty gets the same base pay. Um, And I, you know, I do think that institutions in order to to, to move the needle and close the gender pay gap are really going to need to pay attention to those initial hiring conversations to, to, to really audit that, Um, those metrics and dig deep into the processes that are creating any inequities. And your point is absolutely right. Having transparency um, in those initial conversations is um, is a major step in the right direction. Look, here's our benchmark. Here's the range. Here's where you fall based on X, Y, and Z. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing?
1: Yeah, right. Um, So much that we can do (laughs) There's so much work to be done, and I'm so glad Dr. Amy Gottlieb is leading the charge. I can't wait to see all the great work you do at GWIMS. Friends on the Faculty Factory Podcast, you're going to want to check out Closing the Gender Pay Gap in Medicine, this book, earth-shaking, groundbreaking, we needed it. I'm so glad you did it. And the accompanying New England Journal Medicine article, um, they will both be linked in the Faculty Factory Podcast episode. I'm pointing to um, Amy's episode and look at her past one, number 37, back in October 2019. So, so good, Amy. You are so so smart. Thank you for being on the podcast and for being part of our community and helping us ask these important questions. Start somewhere, do something. Right, Amy? Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for this opportunity. It is wonderful to see you again.
1: See you next time on the Faculty Factory Podcast, friends. Bye-bye.